Now, sometime this week, we have missed quite a bit of school because of all this, and that's good and bad. It's all according to what your perspective is on that, I guess, and uh, whether that's good or bad, <clears throat> and uh, those things. So uh, looking forward to maybe just a little bit warmer weather anyway in the days ahead. Uh, we're going to spend another week looking at uh, the parable, and then I'm going to look at a miracle next week, and, and I want to continue with the uh, doctrinal statement of our church. Number 13 says the local church is a body of believers associated together for work, worship, and fellowship. Here's the part that's very important for us, especially in our day and age. It is an independent and autonomous and is free from all ecclesiastical or political interference. Well, that's an important statement to think about. Ecclesiastical means we have no hierarchy that somehow directs us, uh, like a Methodist or Presbyterian, you know, that we believe that this is an independent local church that God has ordained and set into this area. Uh, we don't adhere to the government, and that's part of the old 08 situation of our school. I've mentioned that to you before. And also, you might remember, uh, they are getting ready to introduce legislation in the Ohio, Ohio House and Senate about tuition tax credits for Christian schools, so pray about that. Um, Bob Cup is the speaker now. He's a very homeschool, Christian school advocate. And uh, we had our representative here, and then we have Gary Click, and we have another lady up in Realm Mentor who used to be on our uh, advising our BCSO board, and she's now in the House of Delegates. And so it's not called House of Delegates, and that's Virginia. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about, uh, in that lower house here in the state of Ohio. So pray about that. You know, pray that they'll be able to get that language worked out, and it'll be a tuition tax credit, which means we, don't, we would take that as a school. We won't take vouchers. Understand why? Well, I'm going to give you all this this morning. Maybe just for a second here. Vouchers means that we government gives us money, and then, of course, when you get government money, you get government strings, right? And that's the problem with that. Uh, tuition tax credit means that as a parent, they would get to take this off of their income tax. The school doesn't receive any money. The parent would receive money uh, on their – it's a tax credit, uh, and there's different versions of this that they're working on, but something that we can be praying about and it would be great to pay not only your taxes to the state of Ohio and to all of our local uh, that are using our money so well here in the state of Ohio and in the local issues, you know, I won't go into that either, but then to be able to um, have to pay your tuition over here, it does become quite a, a situation also. So, so pray about those issues and that God will work those things out. Learning to care and <clears throat> caring for others is our subject this morning, and, and uh, this parable... And it's called a parable, but as I've been reading the literature on this, Jesus Christ does not call this a parable. And uh, there are some individuals who work with that and talk about that. So uh, is this a real occurrence that happened someplace on the streets or in the, in the countryside between Jericho and Jerusalem? Or is Jesus Christ talking about an actual, you know, make-believe story that he's brought up? I shouldn't use the word make-believe with Jesus Christ, but you know what I'm saying, a parable that uh, he's using to present a purpose. I don't think it really matters. But uh, this is a section that probably you and I know much. I mean, there's certain parables that you and I understand and we know and are very common to us. And uh, this parable is really very much pertinent to today, isn't it? You notice some of the topics? Violence. We have some violence today, don't we? Crime. Boy, isn't that a, another issue? What about discrimination? Boy, this one is 
shot through with discrimination. What about hatred? Well, that's another word that's used here in this section. And as believers, we need to understand how to interact, how to get along with, how to be an example to, how to witness to people we come in contact with on a daily basis. I don't know if you ever stop to count how many folks that you actually contact on a weekly basis, just sort of rub shoulders with. It's an amazing amount of people. And, and you know, we as believers have a message that we should bring to them, that we should deliver to them. And so, you know, it's important how we, how we interact with individuals because, you know, the way we treat people, now this is not rocket science, but I'm going to say it anyway, the way we treat people is going to be a large part of whether they're going to listen to us or not. You know, if, if somebody's throwing stones at you, you're probably not going to listen to them when they give you a gospel witness, are you? It's just the way it is. I mean, I should say snowballs today. Uh, you know, they're not going to just sit there, well, well, I want to hear what you have. No, you know, the way we treat individuals is very important. And we want to see how this victim, boy, isn't that a great word today? If you're not a victim, folks, there's something wrong with you this morning. I mean, you, you've got to be a victim of something. You know, and how this victim is treated in this Good Samaritan account. And it's important how we treat people. I was reading one of my commentaries by R. Ken Hughes, and he introduces this by a historical study of Karl Marx. Anybody ever heard of Karl Marx? Some very enlightening situations. He gets his information from somebody called Paul Johnson in a book called The Intellectuals. And I didn't know this. This was, this was sort of a, this was very important to me. He says that, and I won't give you all of it, he says, the self-proclaimed defender of the working class proletariat. That's us, folks. We are the proletariat. If you, understand, you know, if you understand communist language, you'll uh, be a, 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 you know, with that pretty quick. The working class proletariat ne never truly knew or had friendship with a single class, working class of the proletariat. Karl Marx, the great defender of the working men, never had any friend with anybody who was a working person. And even when it says whenever uh, he, it says he never set foot in a factory or a mill, or a coal mine, oh, that's bad language today too, isn't it? You know, a coal mine, or any other industrial place his whole life. According to this man, he never was involved in any kind of a working situation in his entire life. He was self-conscious, and he was a bohemian. He was an intellectual. And uh, he and Engels were together. You know that name too. And uh, it says that he even eliminated any working class socialists from any positions of influence in his communist league that he formed. And, you know, he was an individual who talked a lot about you know, violence and how people were abused. And it does say that the last two decades of his life, he lived in a middle-class home, and he did this because of, uh, and he actually, the only thing he had was two servants, and I guess his maid he impregnated and had a child by, and he became quite an important person in the situation. But his point is this. It's all humans find it difficult to live up to what we espouse intellectually. That's quite a statement. All humans find it difficult to live up to what we espouse intellectually. Further, 
So often, those who are the loudest proclaimers, now get this, it's important, of certain ideas are usually the biggest affront to those certain ideas that they espouse. Isn't that the way it works? And finally, it's not uncommon to love the idea more than you love the people. And are benefactors rather than actually loving people themselves. Now, I think that's a pretty fair definition of individuals such as this, and I, I think this has some credence with the Good Samaritan. Because how we treat people reveals a lot about us. And how we treat people is very important. You know, I've said this many times at a church. I, I sort of enjoy, I can't say I enjoy totally, I sort of enjoy going to churches that I'm not familiar with. You know what I'm saying about this? When we're on vacation, I love to go to church. And um, just see the reaction whenever you walk in. It's kind of hard to miss my wife and I because I'm six foot three. You know, most people can, can see me whenever I, and I got this gray hair that kind of sticks out. And it's, it's interesting to see how many people actually speak to you or not. Well, you you come into Wayside and nobody speaks to you, let me know. We're going to have a congregational meeting afterwards, okay? I mean, that to me is the biggest affront that anybody could ever do is come to a church and nobody even speak to them. Doesn't that somehow violate the character of what an assembly of believers is all about? And you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat others. And... This account is one that you know well. And I'm not going to approach this the way I would normally approach the passage. I want to look at this from five different individuals who are involved in this parable or this story. I'm going to call it a parable. I think it's a parable. And uh, what we can learn from all five individuals. Now, let me just preface this by this statement. There's no doubt about this, that the context states in the first few verses, of, of, of verses 25 down through verse 29, what the purpose of Jesus Christ telling this is. I mean, how do you inherit eternal life? Uh, that's verse 25. There's, that has to be the driving topic that one listens to in this situation. And it's interesting, I heard somebody say, well, you know, uh, I, I, I'm going to inherit eternal life the Good Samaritan way. And so somebody's asking, what do you mean by the Good Samaritan? Well, I'll just show kindness to people, and that way I'll be saved. That's not what this parable is teaching. You and I will never be saved by being kind to individuals. For one thing, you couldn't be kind enough. And another thing, it would never set things right with an eternal, holy, righteous God. But the question is asked, you know, how can I do this? And, of course, Jesus Christ answers that in verse 25. You need to keep the law. And um, the, the lawyer, now remember, he's a lawyer. He's not a standing before a legal profession. But as a lawyer, he is, he is an expert in the Jewish law, the Old Testament. He answers rightly. Verse 27, you should love the Lord your God. And we had this in the devotions for the week, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. The Shema, the Jews quote this every day. Now that's the part here that really is important when I talked about Karl Marx and how he espoused certain things and yet he never really lived them. Well, the Jews would quote this every morning, these verses, verse 27. And the first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. The last part comes from Numbers chapter, I think it's 19. I didn't do my homework quite as accurately as I should have. 
But he says, you know, you should love the Lord your God. And boy, this is a complete love with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I mixed up the last two. But it should be a complete and total love. And then he goes from numbers, and this would be a very Jewish way of doing things, and your neighbor as yourself. And the verses that I gave you in devotions throughout the week had to do with how we treat our enemy. Isn't that a fun one? You know, that person who picks on your grandchild or your child, how you treat them, shows your love for Christ. Because he says everybody can love the people that treat you well. Remember those in, in Luke and also in Matthew? But it's the way you treat individuals that do not, does not treat you the way you think you should be treated. That is the real indication of what kind of a person you are. Well, we discussed this a long time yesterday. Some great ideas here because it really does convict many souls as to how we react and respond to individuals that maybe they won't treat us so bad, but it could be the mate, it could be the kids, the grandkids. Somebody else, you know, he says that, you know, pagans can treat each other well, but it's only God's people that go the extra mile. It's an important concept for us, isn't it, to see. And so the answer is right, and he says, you've answered right. That's the essence, and isn't that the essence of the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God, one, two, one, two three, and four. Neighbor as yourself, six, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and ten. I just read them this morning in Deuteronomy again. It's the essence of what we are to do. Now, the problem is we can't do it. Total depravity is one of our doctrinal statements. It's beyond our ability to do that. And so now he you know, this, uh, amplifies this thing, and he says, thinks he's got him. Thinks he's got Jesus Christ. Who is my neighbor? Okay. And Jesus Christ then responds by telling them this account of the Good Samaritan. So let me just say this morning that salvation is only by faith alone in Christ alone, believing on His blood that He shed for us at Calvary. And that is what Jesus Christ did when He came to this earth to die for us. When He died for us at Calvary, He shed His precious blood so you and I can have the privilege of knowing Him as Lord and Savior. And so... That's the essence of how we become ones who are saved in our language today. And it's the only way. Very intolerant. There's not many ways to God. There's only one. And if you don't come that way, you don't come. Okay? That's the essence of what eternal life is all about. But there are five groups here that tell us some things about how we treat, how we treat people. First group. Found in verse 30 would be the thieves. It says in verse 30 that this certain man went down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiments and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Thieves. Their attitude, first of all, and every one of these will have two points, attitude and application. So their attitude. What's the attitude of these thieves? It's simply this. This is a victim to exploit. This is a victim to exploit. The attitude is, I, no matter you know, who you are, if you've got something I want, I'm going to take it from you. And I don't care what the circumstances are. I don't care what's going on around me. But if there's something in your possession that I think I need and I want, I'm going to take it. 
So he is a victim to exploit. He's not looked upon this person that they are persecuting and wounding and, and beating for dead and leaving for dead or half dead. He's not looked upon as somebody who's created in the image of God, a fellow man. We talked this morning in Sunday school about animals and how they don't have a, I don't know, I'll not put it in quite John's word. They don't have a soul like man does. And, um, you know, we're individuals that are created in the image and likeness of God. That's why, and he talked about abortion, and it's, that will be part of this as well. You know, that, that, the image of God is something that's true of us. Every person who has ever been created, been born, I'll put it that way, has the image of God. I don't care how much they taint it. I don't care how much they, they despise it or drum it down or whatever you want to use, pervert it. Every person who breathes air today is created in that image. And so we need to view individuals as somebody who is a fellow image bearer of God. Now, people may do different things with that image, but it's true. And it doesn't matter to these thieves who this guy is. We're going to take what we want. We're going to take it from you. And if it's yours, if it's mine, if it's mine, I'm sorry, if it's yours, and I want it, I'm going to take it. You know, we have those kind of folks today, don't we? Who are alive in our society who are constantly thinking that they can take whatever they want anytime they want it. A lot of thieves going on in our world today. So that's the attitude. What's the application? Well, the application is this. How do you view people who you come in contact with? When you're walking through Walmart and you see all those fancy-dressed folks in Walmart, what is going through your mind? Especially that guy in the pajama, right? And I know I'm probably undoing what I should be doing already. But the point is, you know, how do we view these folks? Everybody you see, no matter who they are, is somebody that you and I should love. Not like this thief, not somebody to exploit. It's not what can I get from that person? What can I take from that person? I mean, meddling just a little bit. Boy, don't you see this in families many times. Whenever somebody tries to exploit their fellow family members about issues, how many family problems could be avoided without this kind of conduct of what you have, I'll take, no matter who it hurts. And the problem is sometimes we seem to hurt those that are the closest to us, but should never be. Sometimes in the workplace, when somebody lays down on their job and you've got to do their work, they're stealing from the employer, but they're stealing from their fellow employees. I mean, I'm just too important. You need to just sort of make up for me. People are individuals to exploit. What can I get from you? What can I, what can I do to somehow get better for my own self? That's what a thief does, right? 
Absolutely. No thought of ministry here. I don't think any of us would say that. There's no thought of helping him here. It's only, what can I get from you? You know, we must not view individuals as stepping stones to improve the lot of our lives. I'm going to say that again. We must not view individuals as stepping stones to somehow improve the lot of our lives. Because it's not about us in Scripture. It's about service and ministry. Thieves. What's yours is mine. I'm going to take it. Priests and Levites would be our second group that we're thinking about. And let's see what their attitudes would be, verses 31 and 32. And you know, the first one walks by the priest. Then he passes by the Levi, at least comes over and looks at him. I always remember this when I was a little kid. We used to have the flannel graph. Remember the flannel graph? Wasn't flannel graph great? You know, everything now is PowerPoint and all this. I still remember flannel graph. And you know, the guy, they, my, I remember Miss Cordy, Miss Dennison, and mom and dad, they'd bring these little people down the road. And of course, the one guy would just move on the other side of the road. And then the, the Levi, he would get over there and he'd come over here and he'd bend down, look at him, and he'd walk on down. You know, those are great days, weren't they? Uh, when you got to see all that stuff in motion. Now, I guess you could do it by some computer doing all that kind of thing. But, you know, they, one of them, he says, well, you know, here's the attitude. I, I'm in a hurry to serve God. And I just don't have time for this. We've got to be careful of that attitude, don't we? I'm too busy to serve God. I'm too busy to help out. And here it is. Folks, this one will be engraved in gold throughout the ages of eternity. Let somebody else do it. I have already done my part. If I hear that one more time, I will absolutely upchuck. I have done my part. I handled that well, too, didn't I? You know, I have done my part. Let somebody else do it. It's amazing what happens. Just, just don't bother me. And that's what the Levi and the priest, and these are spiritual people. If you read the con, if you, if you read about this, Jericho and Jerusalem aren't that far apart. Many of these people lived in Jericho, so they may have been moving back from, from having their temple ministry, going back home. And here they are after talking about love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your spirit, and your neighbor as yourself. And here's a fellow Jew laying on the side of the road. And they walk by because they are much, much too busy. And maybe somebody else needs to do it. What's the application? Well, we've got to be careful that we don't go through life looking at people as a nuisance. Happens sometimes, doesn't it? But I read this. Every nuisance is an opportunity to help. Everything about that. Every nuisance that comes into my, into my life, and I'm not going to define nuisance this morning. You, know, you can define it for yourself. But every nuisance is an opportunity for us to help. And especially if God lays somebody on your heart. And you're praying for them. You're praying for their salvation. 
you're praying for them in some way, God's already laid that person on your heart. They're not a nuisance. There's somebody that God is speaking to you about saying, you need to get involved in that person's life. Many things to be done and many people that need help. We need to separate, as James would say, the talkers from the doers. That's what Karl Marx was, the talker, intellectual. But never actually dirtying his hands with the politariat, the common folks, the hoi polloi. Priest and Levi, both very, very spiritual individuals. Set aside all the way back to the law of Moses. Number three would be the lawyer. He's found in verses 25 through 29 and verses 36 and 37. His attitude is this. This is a problem to discuss. It's a problem to discuss. He was looking for somebody to argue his case with. He wanted to have a dialogue. Isn't that a good word? That means you're talking about it, folks. He wants to have a dialogue. Sometimes the way that we can do absolutely nothing is to have a dialogue about it. Two examples. Washington, D.C. and the U.N. I don't even hear about the U.N. anymore, do you? I was thinking about the other, this week. I, was thinking, I don't even hear about the U.N. anymore. It used to be you heard about them all, heard about, heard about them all the time, but they don't hear much about them anymore. Thank goodness. But Washington, D.C., I mean, don't you dare go on a vacation to Cancun. Or you're going to be all over the news if you're a Republican, right? But boy, anybody else can steal billions and not worry about it. It's all according to what's going on. So yeah, just talk about it. Don't do anything about it. Sometimes that seems to be the way that we do things. This lawyer wants to talk abstractly. He wants to talk about theory. He wants to talk about some kind of situations. But Jesus Christ says, let's get down to the concrete. You have the old phrase that I've heard all my life, where the rubber meets the road. Let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. Let's see what's going on in your life and what you're doing. What's the application? Well, the application is this, or the action. I guess I use the word action there, not application. Same idea. Action. We must do more than just talk. We need to make some, make 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 part of our lives the answer to help individuals in these situations. It's so much easier to to talk about plans than it is to actually put your plan into action. And you know, this lawyer, he, he's, he's good at asking questions, dialoguing about things, but he finds that he needs to do far more than that. We need to live a holy life. This is the application for myself. You know, we need to live a holy life. All of us do. But you remember the old lifestyle evangelism? Remember that? Where you just sort of lived... Christ before people and they would automatically come to know Christ and, and I understand that and, and 
I can see how it's, but you know, there comes to a time whenever it says you've got to speak to somebody about their need. Yes, we should live a good life before people. I'm not arguing that at all. But there's going to come a time whenever you've got to open your mouth and say, this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's important for us to do things and then to actually put it into practice, especially in the area of salvation. The thieves, the priests, the Levites, the lawyer, what about the innkeeper, verse 35? Don't often think about the innkeeper, do we? He departed and took out two pence and gave it to him and said, take care of him, whatever, whatever you need, whenever I get back, I'll, I'll repay you. The innkeeper, you know, he's a, his attitude, he's a customer to serve. He's a customer to serve. Now, we don't know for sure about this guy. We don't know a lot about him. But, uh, and, and he doesn't give this for, for free, and you know, I'm espousing that would be the facts. But he is part of the customer of the, part, of the part. So he he views individuals as customers. You know, we've got to be careful we don't view individuals as customers. I think this goes along with even the, the thievery idea, but, you know, somehow to take advantage or to do something for our own benefit. And the attitude here is the motivation is very, very important as to why we serve people, what we do. It's very important the, the kind of attitude we have towards individuals that we come in contact with. Not just viewing people as, as future customers in some way. Somehow we can exploit that again or at least make ourselves something that we want but it's something that we can do to serve that God would have us to do. Number five is the one that we all think about, and that would be the Samaritan. He's found in verses 33 through 35, and his attitude is he's a neighbor to help. And, of course, that should be the real issue. And that's the point that Jesus Christ is making with this account, that he's a neighbor to help. And the attitude is, you know, this would be very unusual. Samaritans were from the ten northern tribes of Israel. I think you probably know this, but let me just recant it for you for a second. They, were, they had been Jewish till 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire came and took them away. And they, the Assyrian idea was not like the Babylonian idea. The Babylonians took the Jews in 606, 597, and 586, three, deport, three deportations, well, they finally clear, cleared Jerusalem and the land out. They would bring the entire group there, but, but the Assyrian idea was to repopulate people so they would no longer have their cultural identifications. They would take people out of this country and put them in another country, take people in that country and put them in this country, and folks were talking about hardship. Sounds like the Indians back in the days of Andrew Jackson, doesn't it? But, you know, it would be sort of the same way that they would, they would do these things and uh, allow them to interact. And what happened was they were intermarried. When you read the Old Testament, of course, that would be uh, a, a tragedy, and it was a tragedy. And so there was a great division that would have opened up between Samaritans and Jews. Now, if you read any New Testament at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's been said that Jews would leave the north and go down, wouldn't come through Palestine or go through Samaria, they go all the way around and down on the other side and cross back over the river. They wouldn't have to set their foot in, in, in uh, 
in, uh, in, in uh, the land of Samaria. It was a terrible time of, of prejudice and, and uh, racial problems going on. Discrimination, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. And the last person that a Jew would think would ever help them would be a Samaritan. I imagine in their minds they probably thought that the Samaritans were part of the thieves. Now, we don't find that in the account. I would probably think they're probably Jewish thieves. I don't know. We don't know. But they would think, well, you know, Samaritans would be individuals out there laying in wait for them and, and uh, trying to undo them. But no, here's a Samaritan. And he would be despised. And most Jews probably wouldn't even accept help from this guy because of who he was and what his background was. But he's concerned about him. He sees somebody lying who has been beaten, who is, as far as we know, half dead. I think that's what the language states here. Half dead, verse 30. And I, don't, I can't define what half dead means, but... It's a bad situation, right? He sees him laying here on the side of the road, and his natural heart of compassion comes through and says, I've got to help this person. Even though he's a Jew. Even though he's somebody that probably doesn't want my help for one thing, but isn't it amazing when somebody is half dead, they will accept help from almost anybody also? Throw that in there this morning. But he helps him. Not only helps him, but he goes the extra mile. I mean, he could have stuck a gauze bandage on him, put a little tape around it, and gone on down the road. <laughs> but the point is, he doesn't do that. He goes the extra mile. That's the application. Let me give you four things, and this will be my conclusion also. Four things that I want you to notice about this action that this man takes. And I have them on the screen for you here this, this morning. Four words that really show forth what kind of a person that he was. He was a man, first of all, of compassion, verse 33. He looked upon him and had compassion upon him in verse 33. Notice that word, compassion. He was deeply moved. No, this describes the Lord's emotion to us as sinners. As God looked upon this sinful world, He was filled with compassion. Because we are such desperate sinners. All of us. So all that person's worse or sinners. Sin is sin. James chapter 4, verse 17. If you if you err in one point, you've defiled the whole law. It's not quite the quote, but it's close. He was moved with compassion. And because he was so moved with compassion, he left heaven. All of its glory came to this earth. You and I must treat others as Christ treated us. Folks, that raises the standard. That raises the bar. I need to treat other individuals who are, remember, created in the image and likeness of God, even though it's fallen. I am to treat them as Christ treated me. Here goes the question. How did Christ treat me? 
Here I was in my sin, you were too, completely and totally alienated from God in every way. All of your righteousness, and I'm speaking us, okay, all of our righteousness were as filthy rags. It doesn't get much worse than that in the Bible. Every good thing we did, filthy rags. And yet, what did he do? He left the glories of heaven, condescended to this earth, came in contact with sin, and died on a cross for you and I. We need to understand the situation of those who are without Christ. If somebody dies in their sins, here is the real facts. They are going to a place called hell. We can't soft coat it. We can't water it down. We can't quench any of the flames. It's the way it is. And that should drive you to compassion for that person. It should cause you to pray for them if it's somebody you know well. How much compassion do you have to think about that person burning eternally in hell? What should motivate us anymore with that kind of compassion? I don't want to see anybody, and it's not God's will that anybody would perish. Remember that? And after we pray for them, we should tell them about Jesus Christ. That's why we have Wednesday night here, and we bring the children in, thanks to those who do that. Even here this morning. You know, that's what a church should be doing. That's why we send out missionaries. But it does not take the place of our own compassion, of our own spoken word. As we tell them about the Savior of mankind. Contact would be the second word. Verse 34, it says that um, he went and bound up his wounds wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought her to the end. Contact. He helped him. There could still be robbers up there in the woods. I better take care of myself. You know, if, they, if they've already got some money from this guy and they know I've got, well, they wouldn't know this, but we know we've got at least enough to pay for the, what's he got, two pence, I think it was called. He's got enough to pay for the motel room. If they're up there in the woods again, they're going to come down and get me. I got to take care of number one. I got to take care of myself. Boy, isn't that a great philosophy today? If you don't do it, nobody else will take care of you. No, it, it's contact. He did not allow obstacles to get in the way. Sometimes we have to put ourselves out just a little bit to share with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it may not be our natural surface understanding of stretching us. I mean, one of the Grand Rapids, that's the word they used all the time, Dr. Welch. We need to be stretched. I don't know exactly what stretching means, but it means that you're outside of our natural envelope, right? Of what we feel comfortable with. He had to stretch himself a little bit. Compassion, contact, care, 
Verse 34, it says that he brought him and took care of him. Got to have more than compassion. You know, compassion could move you, but there has to be a time whenever we do something about the compassion. Compassion may be a great thing, but there comes a time whenever I've got to put wings on my compassion. He took care of him. He didn't get sidetracked. When it, came, when it came to doing his job, we must not be sidetracked when it comes to sharing our message, our gospel with others. We need to care for individuals. Compassion's great. We need compassion. But it has to have some feet on it. When was the last time? Good question. When was the last time you actually shared your faith with somebody? When was the last time you even struck up a spiritual conversation with somebody. And here's the last one, the last C, it's cost. Compassion, contact, care, and cost. He had to use his time. Somebody has said, verse 35, you know, your time is probably your most valuable possession, and I agree with that. But it also cost him... Two pence, I think it was. He took out two pence and gave it to the host and said, take care of him. And whatsoever, he goes the extra mile, whatsoever thou spendeth more when I come again, I will repay thee. Cost. You know, I, I wonder if some people have ever, it's ever cost them anything. I truly believe we're, we're going to see that come to a conclusion rather quickly. It's going to start costing us to be believers. Uh, all the hangers-on are going to be declared here pretty soon. Persecution is not a bad thing, of course. None of us want it, but it does purify the church. This costs this man some money, costs him some time. What's it cost you to share your faith? or to speak to somebody about your faith. Have you ever asked the Lord to do whatever to see that unsaved husband or wife or that son or daughter or that nephew and niece saved? That's quite a statement to make. Lord, whatever it costs, I'm willing to do to see that person come to know Christ as personal Savior. We have to give a job. Give up your life. No, I don't say it's going to do that. But would you give your life to see somebody come to know Christ as personal Savior? Well, that's the ultimate cost, isn't it? Cost him something. Everything in life worthwhile, I've heard this cliche all my life, cost. You know, if it's sort of just out there, and I know they're going to do all kinds of free things, but it still costs something. <laughs> it costs. And anything in our lives that's worthwhile is going to cost. Especially when it comes to seeing our testimony before other people. The lawyer understood, didn't he? says, him that showed mercy on him, verse 37. 
He understood. It's mercy that he's talking about. Mercy is something you do no matter what the situation is. Mercy has no qualifications around it. It has no parentheses around it. We need to show individuals mercy. And we do that today especially by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is your greatest concern in life right now? What is the number one issue that you have in life right now? Is it to see somebody saved? Or is it to have some kind of promotion at work? Or to see if you can't somehow manipulate some individual or get ahead somehow financially? Or is it some other issue? It should be to see a person saved. That should be your number one priority. All of our number one priorities. Because... As we stayed here, we can be compassionate, but we have to show that compassion by actually sharing the word with them that they need. So how do we view the victim? You know, how do we view the man who is lying there, who has been beaten down with sin, who has been beaten down with his own, his own way of doing things where he has he has just abused himself and abused those around him and abused everything. You know, how do we view that person as a victim to exploit or a nuisance to avoid or a problem to serve or discuss or a customer to serve or a neighbor to help? I think you know the answer. But knowing the answer and having the intellectual ability to know the answer is not enough. It has to move from the intellect to the will and the action. Father, I thank you today for the